Blog Talk Radio. One, stop mass immigration. The waves of immigrants currently flooding, flooding the Western world have burdened it with hordes of welfare parasites, brought in terrorists, increased tra- crime, led to the proliferation of no-go areas, and resulted in countless bad neighbors who, based on their alien upbringing, culture and tradition lack any understanding and appreciation of liberty and are bound to become mindless future supporters of welfare statism. Well, intros. The system brings some problems, of course, with blog talk radio, so you might. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, blog talk radio. Uh, it, it didn't kick off right on the intro, so we'll go ahead and start. Uh, anyway, uh, Chase, uh, we have Chase, uh, Rachel's with us, Christopher Chase, Rachel's, and uh, David German, my co-host. He's with us, as, as always, tonight. How are you doing tonight, David? Good. How are you? Doing great. And uh, Christopher, so or Chase, uh, you go by Chase mostly, correct? That's right. All right. Um, so why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, any projects that you have going, and your recent book? Yeah, sure. Um, many of you may have heard of me from my first book. I authored. It's called a uh, a spontaneous order: the capitalist case for a stateless society. I've also uh, just over a year ago now uh, founded and established radicalcapitalist.org. I am the founder and editor in chief of that site. And uh, most recently, I have published a book entitled White, Right, and Libertarian uh, with the forward by Hans Hermann Hoppe. And uh, you can find both these books at Amazon.com and paperback, Kindle, or Audible versions. You can also find their PDFs for free at RadicalCapitalist.org if you don't have any money to spare. And um, yeah, if, you wanna, if you're interested in anything that is... Uh, any what related to the alt-right, race realism, uh, Western civilization, traditional Western values and culture, uh, libertarianism, Austrian economics, etc., then RadicalCapitalist.org is, should be the first destination for you. We try to uh, uh, combine all these things in a holistic and engaging approach. So check that out. All right. Thank you very much for for. Uh, telling us about all of that, and I think uh, you've you've been around for quite some time in libertarian circles, isn't that correct? Yeah, um, pretty heavily since 2011, I would say. Right, and and uh, can you tell us a little bit about what what brought you into libertarianism? How how you found how you found it, and sort of decided to make that move into into libertarianism as a personal ideology? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, like so many others, um, I initially encountered libertarianism through Dr. Ron Paul, through his 2008 presidential campaign, 
Um, at the time, I was very much on board with his platform and policies, save for his uh, stance on foreign policy <laughs> and, of course, the surveillance or police state. Um, after doing a lot more studying and reading of Dr. Paul, though, I became convinced on those issues as well, and I started became a constitutional small government conservative slash libertarian and uh, eventually a minarchist, and finally I shed myself of any sort of allegiance to the state whatsoever um, around 2011 and uh, adopted full-fledged anarcho-capitalism. And ever since then, I've been working to learn as much as I can about this ideology and how it can apply to many different complex social situations. And more recently, I've been delving into uh, examining what are the ideal sociocultural factors that should be instated if we are to practically achieve and sustain uh, the, uh, these ideas in the real world. How are we going to practically implement them in the real world? And uh, for a long time, like many others, I totally neglected and ignored the importance of the sociocultural factors that go into actually implementing these principles in the real world. But uh, in the last year or two, I've definitely been red-pilled on this as well. Hence my uh, recent vigorous interest in the alt-right and white nationalism and Western civilization, traditional Western values, and how and white people in general, and how all these relate to establishing and maintaining a libertarian social order. So, so when you mention the term white nationalism, are, are you saying that you you believe in white supremacy? I'm not really sure. You see, I'm still not sure what white supremacy really means. But what I mean by nationalism, uh, first <laughs> you and me, helps, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, right. First, it uh, it's helpful to examine what exactly a nation is. And a nation is simply a group of people with usually with a combination of the following factors: uh, either share the same ethnicity, language, religion, custom norms, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, they don't have to share all factors, but generally uh, at least some of them. And nationalism simply says that you place a premium on the interest of people who belong to your nation as such. Uh, and contrary to the beliefs of many mainstream libertarians or Lulberts, especially left libertarians, uh, a nation does not necessarily entail a state. Nations uh, exist distinct from states. There are nation states but uh, nations can exist uh, um, without the state, outside the state, just because there happen to be states which govern some identifiable nations doesn't mean that they are corollaries, that, they're, that they are necessarily mutually inclu inclusive. Um, so I've been making that distinction a lot lately, and uh, being a white nationalist means, of course, that I uh, value uh, other white people and their interest as a group uh, more than the interest of people of other races, just like I might value the interest of uh, libertarians as a group more than the interest of other people who hold, who hold other ideologies or people who speak English or my family, for instance, I might value their interest over others. Uh, this idea of uh, in-group preference is one that we should embrace and not uh, hold in contempt like so many people do in the present day and age. It's become very, uh, very chic, very fashionable to, uh, 
to forsake this in-group preference. And it's only become fashionable for white people to do this, of course. So again, uh, that's something I've really been uh, pounding on a lot lately. Well, when, I mean, when we're talking when we're about this topic, topic <coughs> um, we're not, we're, for instance, you're not saying um, that you dislike necessarily other races or that you have anything against them or you wish harm or negativity on them. What you're saying is, is that just like, in, for instance, if you look at black culture, they have they, they often talk in terms of black culture. They elect politicians who uh, who pursue the interests of of black Americans, and <clears throat> excuse me, they they pursue the interest of the black community quite often. First, you have a black caucus in Congress, the NAACP. Uh, and so, so when you talk about that, that, you're thinking more in those terms. You're not thinking of white nationalism in the term of, you know, hate everybody who's not white. At least that's the way yeah. I took it from, from the uh, of, Yes. Yes, that is exactly right. And that it's the same for most other white nationalists. It's only the mainstream view, the propagandized, culturally Marxist influenced view of white nationalism that tries to associate it with hating other peoples, of wanting to harm other peoples. And this is something I take great um, uh, contention with. Any other group of people, whether it's ethnicity or sex or whatever else, to be pro-woman doesn't necessarily entail anti-man, and everyone knows this, but to be pro-male, people think you're anti-woman. To be pro-white, people think you must be anti-other people, but being pro-black just means pro-black. That's it. Um, this, is this, this is the sort of uh, manipulation that we have been inundated with today in academia and Hollywood and the media and our public schooling system that not only is it okay, but it's actually encouraged to be pro-brown, pro-black, pro anything other than white. Same thing with being pro-female, same thing with being pro-gay or pro-lesbian or pro-transgender. The only thing it's not okay to be pro is white, straight, male, conservative, or Christian, or I guess in some cases pagan. Um, and it's, it should be very clear why it is that these particular demographics are um, are deliberately subverted or deliberately undermined. And I believe, again, and I talk about this in my book, that it's because it's this demographic of people which constitutes the greatest threat to the state, which has traditionally, historically, been the big, the biggest enemy of the state and has kept it in check and has created the societies which are the most pro- approximately libertarian and capitalist that the world has ever seen. How would you say that... Um, Go ahead. David, is that you? How this how this started and how this um, led to the um, alt right, the historical um, um, process of uh, how we got to anti whiteness. Right. Well, back in uh, back when Marx, you know, wrote the Communist Manifesto, uh, it seems like their primary intention of being able to spread communism and create this one world egalitarian utopia was by creating what we called a, a sort of class warfare, right? So they focus more on financial classes. It's the rich versus the poor, the working man versus the capitalist. And uh, what ended up happening was what they realized is that they couldn't 
dry this wedge between these classes as such because they all had something in common, which was that they were all had a common sort of Christian identity, mostly. But more generally, they all held true to certain Western institutions and values that kept them together, that kept them from having enmity with one another. And so ultimately, this attempt to divide people based off financial class uh, failed, failed pretty horribly. Um, so, you know, years later, Grant, this guy named Gramsci, and I don't have a lot of particular dates, but it's kind of a general narrative, so just bear with me. Um, this guy Gramsci developed uh, what we think of as the cultural Marxism by establishing the Frankfurt School, and he developed this idea of uh, the long march through the institutions. And what he means by this is instead of focusing so much on pitting people against each other based off of their financial class, he instead is looking at well, what what is the cultural fabric that allows us to um, cohere with one another, to cooperate and uh, uh, have bonds with one another that exist outside the financial classes. And what he discovered, of course, was it was these traditional Western customs and values and institutions, you know, the nuclear family, uh, prudence, the English language itself, uh, this heteronormative lifestyle, this patriarchal lifestyle that we adhere to this and even this uh, sort of uh, strictly political individualism and ultimately of course uh, white people as a whole the sort of european pride white pride pride and um, valuation of western civilization so in order to undermine capitalism first you have to undermine the heteronormative white patriarchy the traditional western patriarchy and so of course Slowly and incrementally, they have been undermining all of these traditional Western institutions and values. And, and you probably see the greatest uptick of this starting in the 60s. And now when you look around in academia and Hollywood and the media and, and even through government and public schools, um, it's very all these leftist ideas are very vogue. And if you look at them closely, leftism is simply a synonym for anything anti-traditionally Western. Anything anti-white, anything anti-straight, anything anti what we consider normal from the Western perspective. And um, they've been very successful thus far. However, it's my belief that they've tried to push things too far too quickly, and this has awoken a sleeping giant. And that sleeping giant has taken the form of the alt-right and all the pissed-off people who voted for Trump, I would say, more generally. So I guess... I- if you think about it in, in a lot of those terms, we, we did an entire show on um, cultural Marxism or critical theory um, <clears throat> some time ago. And so, yeah, a lot of what you're talking about now is, is quite true. You can see uh, uh, the whole, the whole con the whole idea is to break down social norms. If you can destroy the social norms, then you can mold society back into some sort of uh, uh, shape that you want it to be in. Uh, I guess I think one question that I have for you is, what what is it that inspired you to go from that that, that Lulbert phase, that la la libertarian phase, and start moving towards a more uh, alt right libertarian position? Well, I'd have to say the initial catalyst was the border debate, and I think the border debate is a great litmus test for someone who is a genuine libertarian who is willing to very much critically examine 
libertarian principles and how they apply and one who just wants to stick to a shallow understanding or a shallow bumper sticker understanding of what they think libertarianism is. And granted, it is a little more complex than most topics that libertarians feel comfortable with. You know, of course, it's easy to be anti-war. It's easy to be anti-Fed. You know, it's easy to be against the welfare state conceptually. Um, but the, the border debate is requires a little more of a nuanced understanding. And it requires us to put put aside our knee-jerk reaction and intuitions and really critically think about how our principles apply in such situations. So when I, when I did this, I struggled with it for a while because I knew it wasn't straightforward. And, you know, of course, I ultimately came to the conclusion that open state border policy is uh, insult upon injury upon current victims of the state and that it is actually the furthest from, the, from an approximate libertarian solution and that some state restrictions the borders are better than none and even more ideal to have those restrictions uh, enforced by private organizations just we just want the state not to interfere with such enforcement and of course we all agree on the ideal that a fully privatizing the state out of existence is, is the best but uh, we can't just keep repeating what our ideal end goal is we need to start examining well how do we get there what steps need to be taken and of course as intermediary steps are going to involve a state. A state is going to be present during all those intermediary steps. The only step in which the state isn't present is the final step. Um, of course, many libertarians don't want to recognize this for whatever reason. They're very idealistic. They don't. They don't want to think about strategy and practicality. They just want to keep chanting NAP. You know, don't use force as if it's <laughs> somehow going to spontaneously erode the state. You know, I, I really don't understand, but. That's what they want to do. It makes them feel good, I guess, the virtue signaling, but uh, it's not very helpful. Right. And, and not only that, not only is it not very helpful, but it often leads them to conclusions which are actually at odds with the very philosophy they purport to uh, before. So, go ahead. It, it, well, it, it does. It does. It is uh, uh, self-contradicting and and leads to performative contradictions all over the place. David, do you have uh, any other questions you want to ask uh, Chase at this moment? Um, no, 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 not at the moment. Well, I could probably okay. keep talking on this well, question. So, um, well, I, I go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, yeah. Okay. So, anyways, um, so once I discovered the border debate and and the truth behind that, you know, what's that? Obviously, some border restrictions are more libertarian than none. You know, and this was right after the Larkin Rose debate that I had. I really started looking into okay, what is the essential the essential foundation of this divide in this libertarian community? Like, what there is something else here other than just the difference in nuance understanding of how borders apply. There's something more going on here, you know. And that's when I really started to finally look into culture. And finally started looking into different customs and norms and, and these factors. And what I discovered, of course, was what was obvious. What I've only chose not to see, I guess, because it was more politically correct, which is that libertarianism is a very, very uh, European sort of philosophy. And it has only ever uh, really proliferated in uh, Western European society and, and more specifically amongst white people. And that it's, you know, it's absolutely no coincidence that 94% of American libertarians are white. 
94 percent. Well, and I want to, I'd like to interject one thing here. Amongst sure. Europeans, I would happen to say, I would, I would hazard to say, that it is far more prominent amongst those of us who are of Western European and really, in particular, British descent and cultural values than it is amongst people from other parts of Europe. Because you look at Marxism and some of the other ideologies that, that we, we fight with, and they, they come out of Europe also. Or Marxism comes out of Germany. You know, it's... Uh-oh. So. We're, about to, we're about to delve into the uh, Jewish question stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, I just wanted to point out the fact that, that um, there's, a, there's a, a, several different ideologies that have sprung out of Europe. And really, right. I mean, libertarianism is really a, a product of classical liberalism, and, and you could trace that primarily back to the British. Right, sure. No, I agree. I agree with you totally. Uh, obviously, a Western Europe is more amenable to uh, libertarian and capitalist ideals than Eastern Europe and so forth. Uh, that's that's certainly true. However, I would also say that um, the spread of Marxism and ideas like this have kind of spawned from foreign elements, non-genuinely European elements, mainly the triple parentheses elements, you know. <laughs> and, right, uh, right. <laughs> without this sort of deliberate subversion and manipulation of the culture of the people, um, I don't think these communistic or Marxist ideas would have taken as such hold as they have in Europe. I think that as insofar as the cultural Marxism and the, and the socialism exists in Europe, that this is a sort of perversion of traditional Western European values by this sort of outside element, primarily. Like, I don't think it was a natural outgrowth from European peoples. I think it was a very artificial one, if, if you catch my drift. Yeah. Um, yeah, I well, friend, very inverted. Very inverted. Go ahead, David. I had a friend say to me, um, uh, he thinks that uh, a Western civilization is um, manipulatable, or some reason, for some reason, because it uh, it tends to have like the fall of Rome, the French Revolution. The, he thinks that um, this is something that happens. It might be a symptom, or um, just a natural manifestation of a. Uh, Part of Western civilization, but I, I don't I don't buy that. Well, guys, here's, here's, my, here's my theory on that. You've got a little bit of somebody has a radio like has a show playing two feet away or twenty background sort of. Yeah, you're breaking up pretty bad, but I don't have any other show going on over here. Mm-mm. All right. Go ahead, guys. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chase. Yeah, so, so my theory on this is – and this is kind of a, a double-edged sword when it comes to Western civilization. And it can be used against us, as it has, and it can be used to our benefit, which it should be. And that is that we are – unlike all other people, we are willing to self-critique to a much larger degree than any other people or civilization. We are willing to – perpetually and constantly re-examine our premises, reevaluate our premises, and own up to our mistakes and our errors. You know, we have a sort of uh, conscience that, that compels us to be self-critical. 
unfortunately, this is a this is a good thing, but unfortunately, this is something that can be kind of taken advantage of and exploited and manipulated. And what many of us have done is allowed allowed other peoples and cultures to really um, pull on our heartstrings, to make us feel guilty for things that our people have done in the past, to to try to demand all these sort of restitutive and equalizing measures to sort of level the playing field that we have supposedly uh, made unfair um, through years of exploitation and oppression and what have you. And because we're self-critical people and that we're willing to take personal responsibility for things, uh, we have allowed them to guilt us into a position to where we have been, you know, to a point of masochism. And, uh, what we what we don't realize, what we don't think and consider is that, and this is starting to happen more now, but we used to just totally neglect the idea of, wait a minute, all these other peoples are not only guilty of the same things they accuse of us, but are usually guilty of them to a much larger degree. And all the worst institutions in the history, I'm thinking namely of slavery right now, have actually been ended by us. Um, and, you know, even different people with alternative lifestyles, whether they're, they're gay or they worship some foreign God, or um, even if they identify as socialists, all these people are no safer in anywhere else in the world than they are in Western nations. We are very tolerant. We are very, very willing to self-examine. And it's, it's not that this is a weakness per se, but when it's employed incorrectly, it can be a weakness. We should be willing to question ourselves, to reexamine our principles, to reevaluate our own persons, and to hold ourselves accountable. But we need to not do that in a way that destroys us, but rather in a way that helps us grow. But we've been doing it in a way that's deliberately destroyed us, um, and we've been helping other people at our expense. You know, and that's if no magic. That's a big issue. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the you have to know where to draw the line. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being tolerant of other people. Uh, there, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with um, ex- being accepting of different people. The, the the point I think is is that there's a line where you cross, where you begin to. Uh, it begin, you begin to allow your activities, they, they, become, they begin to have a negative effect upon yourself, your community, and, and, and your family, and so on. And, and I think we, as a culture, we've, we're crossing those lines now regularly. We're taking action to be inclusive, to be tolerant, to be accepting, but we're going way, we're going so far out of our way that it's actually beginning to damage our own, our own culture and our own society. Yeah, it's like pathological altruism, you know. <laughs> um, I think that's but, a good, that's a very, very good term. I think that that's probably correct. Or slave morality. Or... Yeah, slave morality is another way of looking at it. Sure. And, um, you know, we need to understand that you can be tolerant. You cannot hate others. But to be tolerant and to not wish harm upon others and to actively harm others doesn't require you to deny your own in-group preferences, to not place a premium on the interest of your own people, nor does it require you to include foreigners and people of 
mutually exclusive values and backgrounds to live amongst you, to work amongst you, to live in your neighborhoods, to go to your schools. Hell, we even go so far as not just to tolerate our coexistence in the same communities, but we even go so far as to subsidize them at our own expense and to a large measure. And we even go so far as to not only socially encourage the mixture of these people with us, but to legally mandate to forcefully integrate these peoples, you know, and this has caused very devastating effects for our civilization. You know, this is, this is undermined the very things that made us great. Well, what other nation will you find where that happens? I I dare you to go to the Congo and, and demand that they integrate for instance, white people or Asian people and put them in positions of power, put them on welfare and pay their way, give them free housing, and and give them uh, affluent jobs. They dare you to try it. South Africa. Yeah, they yeah. I dare you to try it. It's, it's absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, most of these problems will be remedied if we simply let people associate whom they want to associate with, if we simply force them to subsidize other peoples, if we simply um, allowed people to discriminate, and if we, um, if we were more, how should I say, if we normalize the idea of socially encouraging sticking with the in-group, promoting the in-group, use, showing the in-group as being the priority. Like, there's nothing wrong with this. It's, it's, so, it's so pathological because every other group does this. And we encourage every other group to do this. And I encourage it. You know, ethno-nationalism, like white nationalism, black nationalism, I, I don't think ethno-nationalism is just best for white people. I think it's best for all peoples. You know, I think, I think libertarianism and capitalism are best for all peoples, too. I just, you know, I'm realistic enough to realize that most other peoples aren't actually going to, uh, <laughs> they're not actually going to yeah. go for this for their whatever cultural reasons. But if they had, it would be better for them than not doing it. It's, it's not so something that's just need, best for us. You know, well, when you start saying about ethno nationalism, white nationalism, so on, uh, black nationalism, you start talking national people. All, you know, I can just see it now. People listening are probably you know clutching their pearls and fainting right now. You know, yeah. It's, it's, It's outrageous because the whole point is is that we live it. If you go right now and you drive – like I live in Missouri. If you were to go to St. Louis and you drive through St. Louis right now, it is – people have separated themselves where they're not – when they're not controlled where they live. We don't tell people where to live. People have separated themselves into communities like communities. In a lot of cases, it's along racial lines. They're living like nationalists. Yeah, well, it's it's our natural inclination, and and it, it works better because there happens to be a higher social trust between people of the same ethnicity, um, other things equal, and this is because uh, we are closer in proximity genetically. Um, this is something that has developed in us biologically. It, it's it's what's helped us thrive, you know. And uh, what we need to realize is, like you said. You know, in places where people are allowed to discriminate and associate, like church is a great example. These are very ethnically homogenous communities. And they also 
likewise have the least amount of conflict and tension. You know, it's it's almost always the case that the most amount of conflict and hostility comes in the areas which are the most multicultural, the most multiracial, and more specifically where they are forcefully integrated. And this is why the 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 blacks versus the brown, like versus the Mexicans in the gang warfare is the most hostile. And of course there's, you know, there's inner black gang violence too, but this has less to do with the drawbacks of ethno ethnic homogeneity as than it does, you know, just the low IQ, high testosterone sort of inclination to aggression that tends to prevail in that community. Um, They're also fighting over the same territory. So, so when you see hostility in that group, that's, that's them, two different power structures duking it out for control of that territory. And the reason why that's occurring is because they're both of the same, the same ethnic background. So they don't want to to control the white neighborhood. They want to stay right there and build their base in the black neighborhood where they're from. Right. Of course. Absolutely. So yeah, this, this is, this is something that has um, unfortunately alienated a lot of my former audience. But it has also brought me to a entirely new audience, and I'm really happy to promote this more holistic message, not just looking at what is the correct political economic side of the house, not just looking at what are the correct sociocultural values and norms to promote, but looking at them as a whole picture and realizing that these are very complementary things, that they work better together, and that if they're not together – they're ultimately going to be undermined. For instance, having a ethnically white homogenous society, even when that's initially grounded in traditional Western European values, if it's under a socialistic governance, it's eventually going to crumble. You know, the, the socialism is going to offset the costs of people's individual actions and behavior, and this is going to uh, cause them to adopt higher time preference behavior to become more promiscuous to save and invest less, to work less, all these things. And these are eventually going to lead to moral and civil decay. Likewise with the libertarian stuff. If you have a libertarian society without uh, traditional Western values and norms and customs, uh, they are eventually going to give way to the collectivist tendencies of other types of peoples. And this is going to land you into another communist hellhole, (laughs) you know, um, IQ alone isn't everything. Uh, culture alone isn't everything. Uh, economy and, and political governance isn't everything. But these are all significant factors, and none of them should be dismissed for consideration simply because doing so is more politically correct. So, so one of the so things to think about, think about is the fact that between spontaneous order. I guess the border, the border, and white, white, and libertarian, the the, the border debate kind of sparked you, and you sort of went off down this path, um, uh, and and we realize, as Papa says, that uh, the economic side is only one part of the equation, and we've been overlooking the cultural side this whole time, and there, we have libertarians have a lot to learn from the alt right, and vice versa, the alt right has something to learn on economics. <laughs> from libertarians, from the from the Austrian economic side. 
So, so tell tell me and, and David a little bit and the audience about what where your primary inspiration came from as far as your book White Right and Libertarian. What what made you sit down and say, you know what, I need to write a second book and I need to cover this topic. <laughs> well, just like you said, um, there's a willful lacking of advocacy for Western values and institutions, and even more so lacking of an emphasis on the relation race has on the impact of society, even politically, even the political impact that it has, an economic impact. And uh, the biggest inspiration for you is, was Hoppe. For a long time, I loved Hoppe's work on politics and economics, but I kind of thought he went off the deep end with his sort of cultural commentary. I didn't really agree with all of it. I kind of liked my sort of hedonistic, promiscuous, degenerate lifestyle. I wasn't really quite wanting to give that up, so I just kind of put that to the way I kind of neglected it. I didn't really see its relevance from the surface, so I just sort of ignored it. And then, of course, once I discovered the borders debate, the reality behind that, I said, well, you know, if he's right on this, maybe I should reexamine the other stuff. And one thing led to another, and... Uh, I just couldn't stop falling that rabbit hole down further and further. I went into race realism. I looked at that. I looked into the IQ impacts. I looked into um, the different statistics that different demographics have with regards to how they feel about government, how they feel about the economy. I looked into different crime statistics. I looked into uh, the biological relationship to the inclination towards crime, towards higher time preferences, which I know high time, which I knew at the time, high time preferences never lead to a libertarian outcome or a, <laughs> a free market society ever, ever. Um, so just one thing just led to another, and I was very excited to see a very large, very um, quick growing alt right community who was very down with all these ideas that have been so long taboo. And I noticed within this community that a lot of them are disenfranchised libertarianism. But they're but what I recognize also is that it's not true genuine libertarianism they're disenfranchised with. It's this fucking perverted, thickened, leftified libertarianism that these fucking idiots who've taken over the Libertarian Party and the mainstream right. libertarian community have been propagating. So I'm desperate to not allow these alt-right people to throw the baby out with the bathwater to sort of um, reinforce what exactly the essence of libertarianism is and sort of, uh, um, how do I say, dispel a lot of the common misconceptions and misapprehensions of what it actually entails. Uh, too many libertarians and too many alt-righters think libertarianism is about weed, but sex, multiculturalism, and open borders. That has nothing <laughs> to do with that. You know, it's not fucking libertarianism. It's just private property. No, it's not. It's not. And you know? and, and and honestly, I mean, you know, that is really the weakness in um, in the libertarian community is the the tendency to really become more libertine than anything on the cultural side, and to take that sort of anything goes. Um, and it's very, very uh, uh, non-discriminatory behavior as far as your sex partners, what you put into your body, how you live your life, your family, etc. On the alt-right side, however, um, I see tendencies to go into socialist thinking. 
and to to begin to advocate, you know, social security type programs, welfare programs, and we're back to square one with them. They're right on culture, but they're so far off on on the the economic side that it's, it's just. I mean, it's almost as bad just the other way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, yes, exactly, and it's it's because I think the downfall of socialism has been there's been too many blacks, brown, black people, and brown people. It's it was an issue of demographics, not a systemic issue of socialism itself. Um, and what they don't realize, what's ironic, is that um, the progress, the the prosperity of Western civilization, the nature of of European peoples. Uh, goes hand in hand with small government, with free markets. That we've, that yes, yes, you do need a white ethnically, an ethnically homogenous white population to have a prosperous and culturally sound society. This is true. This is true. But the reason it is true is because these are factors which are needed to actually be able to implement and sustain a libertarian or an approximately libertarian social order. You know, you, you, you can't divorce the whiteness from the, the market, from the anti-state mentality. These things are, you know, you know, uh, uh, go ahead, inextricable. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, there are societies where they are, they do have different elements. They have prosperity in some cases, or they have cohesiveness and strong cultural values and traditional values. But almost without exception, they're almost always uh, authoritarian in some manner. If you look at China, if you look at Japan, and, and they weren't always very um, technologically advanced. I mean, they, they had their moments, but... In general, I mean, there's not, there wasn't a whole lot of personal freedom. Well, you have to, to um, recognize that where are you measuring uh, prosperity by? You know, China has been a very, very poor country, and until very recently, it's been booming economically precisely because it's heading more towards a capitalist direction than it has been. I think, I, uh, I think in terms to, of 2,000 years ago, ancient China, there, there were some moments where there, they were they – were, they had some prosperity, at least in different regions of China, and they, they were able to have certain levels of education and so on, uh, and compared relatively prosperous compared to their neighbors. But right, but, and we ne- also but they never really uh, advanced. They never really advanced. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously, the, you know, the East Asians have had a pretty prosperous society, but we also recognize that East Asians have much lower time preferences than other people, much higher IQs. And because of this, they're willing to show more restraint and forego this sort of uh, as much interference with the economy. You know, just because you have a dictator or emperor doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a very socialist society. In fact, and Hoppe has demonstrated this too, when you have a ruler which is sort of what's dynastic in nature, who exercises a sort of ownership of that which he rules as opposed to a temporary a caretaker position of that which he governs, he's going to look out more for its long-term interest. He's not going to just exploit as many resources as he can while he's in office because he knows it's only a temporary position. He knows he needs to maintain the capital value of the 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 territory which he governs because he wants to not just keep it for himself in the long run, but he wants to pass it down to his posterity. And this has been China's um, sort of governing system from ancient China, it's just a series of dynasties. 
you know, and well, the high Q, the low time preference. Thing, I think they have they've forgotten being too much interference into the economy and to the lives of the people. Yes, there's a central ruler, but it doesn't mean that they're creating a lot of invasive rules just because there is a central ruler. You know what I mean? No, right. And, and the other thing we have to remember is that capitalism uh, is not necessarily sufficient to have um, sufficient in order to have sort of a libertarian or more liberal society. It is necessary if you want to have a libertarian society, but it's not necessarily sufficient on its own. And I think that's part of the case that, that is somewhat part of the case that you're making uh, in your book and, and in the discussion that we're having right now, because uh, you were mentioning all the different aspects that you really need to, to have that formula. I would say a little differently. I would say that in order to get the libertarian capitalist society in the first place, you're going to have to promote lower time, have a culture of low time preferences, have a, relative, a culture that's relatively high IQ, that has a homogenous culture that is willing to be uh, more politically individualist, not to be confused with hyper-individualist. And of course, the only people who have really excelled in all of these areas has been Western white Europeans. You know, no other nation has had all these factors all at once. You know, the Asians, yes, they have the high time preferences, or sorry, the low time preferences and the high cues, but they have been very collectivistic as a people, which has given way to very authoritarian sort of uh, states. And even though they weren't the worst authoritarian states, they weren't quite as libertarian as the Europeans, which is why they're probably our closest competitors when it comes to the greatest civilizations. Probably the next greatest civilizations were the East Asian civilizations next to European ones um, for these right. reasons. Which explained explain a lot of the reasons why Western, you know, Western European, European uh, nations were excelled and were able to uh, kind of dominate commerce-wise and military power-wise. Uh, David, do you do you have any questions that you, or any, any points that you want to make? Um, what was uh, Jeff Tucker saying in that debate with you about Spain? <laughs> oh, geez. Um, I think I I didn't really catch it. I think he was trying to insinuate something about how bringing in all these migrants help the country or something in some way. I I wasn't aware of the historical reference he was making or trying to say. He was kind of all over the place in the debate, so it was kind of hard to follow. <laughs> um, right. Just remember, right, David? Uh, Voltaire can can suck my balls, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chase, after that, I think uh, because he had mentioned, didn't he bring up Voltaire during that he, he, debate? He briefly mentioned him. Yeah, I don't even remember, yeah. honestly. <laughs> yeah, as you said, he was all over the place. Um, so, so on your book, um, the forward is obviously done by uh, Papa, um, and, and it, it's—I mean, it's a great forward. Um, there is a kind of a backstory to that, um, <laughs> how that all came about and how things went down on that. Um, so, what what is your relationship now with uh, the Mises Institute at this point? Non-existent. Really, I'm, I'm really I'm surprised that it that it happened now. I mean, I, I really am shocked by that. I, of course, I saw how the whole thing unfolded. So, so. Um, the, your forward ended up being published on LouRockwell.com before it got before the book came out. Isn't that correct? 
Yeah, well, it was an abridged version of the forward. And the only the only thing they omitted was Hoppe's endorsement of my previous and my current book. <laughs> Conspicuously okay. enough. So, because this, this board, I mean, it was written specifically for this book. Yes. Um, so, uh, I, I think, I mean, from, from where I'm at, I mean, there, there's sort of a, this whole incident with the forward, the book and everything, it just seemed like it it kind of created a little bit of a a schism there between the groups that, that I am a part of and you're a part of and that David is a part of that and the libertarian side and some of the, the, the Mises crowd, um, so, I mean, what are is there is there anything that that is has there been any more news or anything at all in light of that? Or, I mean, is it just done over and no one talks about it anymore? No, you know, it's no, not really. You know what? And look, here's the thing. I certainly do not expect, nor do I want, the Mises Institute to start promoting a bunch of white nationalist stuff. I certainly understand the strategic cost of doing that. And that would probably cost them a lot of their donorship, and that might cost them some of the valuable credibility they built up for a long time. You know, that's not what they're there for. They're, they shouldn't be there to promote, you know, white nationalism. And I understand that. That's totally acceptable. You know, um, so I never did, nor do I do I want now for them to have endorsed my book or published my book or anything like that. And this is precisely why I didn't go to them. You know, um, the issue is, however is that they went out of their way. They went out of their way to interfere with a private arrangement between Hoppe and I, one in which we were both fully aware of the conditions, one in which he with full knowledge of the entire manuscript understand, understood what he was getting himself into. You know, and um, this, it's one thing to have a strategic uh, restraint when it comes to talking about these ideas, white nationalist ideas, organization like Mises Institute, that's, that's smart. That's understandable, but it's quite another thing to go out of your way to let the fear, the fear of any possibility of being perceived as in any way being friendly with anyone who is sort of have a white nationalist bent to allow that to have you interfere with the private arrangement and not just interfere with it, but to go behind a person's back and try to undermine it. That is that was what was totally unacceptable. And uh, you know what? I didn't even want to publicize that. I knew that this would make them look really shitty. So I kept my mouth shut. Said this is really fucking shitty. You guys have betrayed mm-hmm. me. You could have easily come to me directly, and I would have addressed any concern you would have had. Um. I was never going to publish the book with the, the, the uh, infamous cover without Hoppe's approval. <laughs> so that's a bullshit reason not to come to me. It's so stupid. It would take two seconds. I, I know a handful of people there personally who could have easily messaged me in two seconds and I could have responded, right, to clear the air. Right. Um, uh, but instead, they chose not to work with me. And even, even after that, I, I tried to reach out to them directly despite the fact that they've been underhanded and say, look, you know, you did this shitty thing. I want to get past it. Let's work something out. They're just totally unwilling to work anything out. Once they, once they found out that Hoppe's name was attached to a, a book entitled white, whatever, 
they had made their minds up. They had shut off any sort of critical thinking facilities, and they just went on attack mode. And ultimately, every one of their worst fears was materialized and then some, because not only did they have the same association they were afraid of having with Hoppe, but now they revealed themselves to be very shitty and underhanded, to not be professional, you know? Um, and it sucks. And the only reason I even talked about this is because after some of their staff and people were actually uh, writing libel about me publicly, you know, it was only then right. that I decided to finally correct correct the uh, the issue in the story. And I knew I can only do this credibly by presenting all the facts. Well, I think I think that's the, one of the one of the key points here is I think that you you really you, there was no reason for, from your perspective to even go public with anything that was occurring there, but the, essentially they, they kind of forced it by attacking you personally. I mean, they were attacking your reputation, and and you they kind of put you in a position where you, you really didn't have any choice but to, to defend yourself, I mean, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, they're saying things like, uh, oh, he, he totally uh, uh, hoodwinked Hoppe by by um, not showing him the title or he was very aggressive with everyone here with Jeff and he was very dishonest. And when you see the emails and the man and the transcripts from these on my, my article about this, you'll see that I was anything, but I was very transparent, open and direct the whole time. I provided Jeff Deese with the entire book himself when he was had concerns and with the cover. And when, even before, like the very first thing I said was, look, Hoppe just told me he was uncomfortable with the cover, so I'm changing it. So recognize that I'm changing it now. Here's everything. Let's work something out. Let's find a mutually agreeable resolution for this. No harm has been done. It has been made public. No one's reputation has been in, in infringed, nor was it going to be made public without his approval. And of course, ultimately, when I started publicizing these things, you know, about how the Mises Institute handled things after they libeled me, that's when mysteriously the cover leaked. And I think it leaked from them or someone closely connected to them because the version of the cover that leaked was like the first draft of the cover. And there had been more since, but it was that first draft, which I had shared with Chris Calton, who works at the Mises Institute, which I got leaked. So at that point, it seemed like they just wanted to leak it to take the heat off of themselves and make me seem like this crazy person with this crazy cover. <laughs> which, yeah. which well, ironically, like, the last... they ended up doing the very thing that they tried to morally high ground me not to do. Oh, who were you thinking yeah. making this cover? Don't you know the Hoppe could be endangered? But once their reputation right. was being under heat, somehow, uh, coincidentally – my cover gets leaked and it wasn't by any of me, my, me or any of my friends. And it was the same cover that I gave to them a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, the, 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 the reason that I bring this up is because the last portion of the book, like the last in the appendix, the last, I don't know, right. like maybe 20 pages or so it is, it sort of lays out the, the controversy and it kind of explains what happens and, and, and gives and, and, and you provide a lot of documentation for for your position on this. Uh, I mean, I feel I feel like that uh, you made a good case for your ad. Well, well, I knew I knew I had to because it's my word against the Mises Institute's and they have more credibility. So if if I'm going to save my reputation from being impugned, I have to show all the documentation, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
You know, and I think it was very clear, everything I provided, that I did nothing but go out of my way many, many times to genuinely try to find some resolution. And they did nothing but go out of their way to just exacerbate the situation. Which didn't make sure. sense to me because if you don't want this forward to be released, you don't want this cover to be published, if you want some changes to be made, why would you not work with the only person who has the power to make these changes? And more, more than that, why would you go out of your way to piss this person off? And then more to that, why would you not only not work with them, piss them off, and then why would you move on to to libel him and to personally sure. uh, insult him publicly? Like it, it's it baffles me. It baffles me, even from just a purely practical standpoint, even if they had no morals or scruples. It just baffles me from a practical stance why they behaved the way they did. I don't understand. <laughs> I guess maybe it's well, like to them, not, don't negotiate with white nationalists is like not negotiate with terrorists. You know, maybe that's on the same par. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, okay, so the thing that kill, the thing that kills me about this, and I'm going to defer to David here in a second. Um, you know, a lot of the people in the Mises Institute uh, associated with guys that wrote uh, things in the Taki Mag for years, for decades, and Taki Mag just ended, you know, six, seven years ago. And uh, really, that's where that's where the whole alt right thing started. And, and you know, Spencer was an editor of Taki Mag, and, and so it, you know, it was a bunch of paleo libertarians, and, and it sort of evolved into this. And, and that's really where this whole thing started. And they had no problems associating and talking to these people for years. And now all of a sudden, they've, they've got a problem with with one thing. Well, the Overton window has messed. shifted left since then, I think, you know. <laughs> right. Are you talking about on uh, – um, in general, or are you talking about at the Mises Institute? Both, I guess. <laughs> I mean, so, so uh, David, do you – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chase. Wait, was, wasn't it – like I've, I've also heard, and I don't know this for a fact, but from people within the Mises Institute and who are closely connected to the Mises Institute, they've told me that – you know, those racist newsletters that Ron Paul supposedly authored or got into a bunch of shit for, that those were even authored by Jeffrey Tucker himself. And now this is the biggest I, fucking tool left libertarian guy out there. I've I've heard that and I've also heard some of them were authored and, and I you know, at the risk of, of making some people angry, I have there was some speculation that Lou Rockwell authored some of them. And oh yeah, well that's that's even more believable than campaign. Tucker. Yeah, that's even more yeah. believable than Tucker. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, but, but Tucker was a was a was a was Lou's guy. So so yeah. I'm not surprised. Um, I, I think that I think the big thing here is uh, the le- the lesson that I've learned is that uh, you you never can tell <laughs> with when it comes to when it comes to politics, you never can tell. Well, you know what it was, and he, this is my theory. Look. Hoppe had just delivered a speech, one of his most explicitly pro-white, pro-Western civilization speeches. And, and Jeff, Jeff acted like when I talked to him on the phone, like, well, Hoppe doesn't talk about white people. He just says Western culture. Like, no, he explicitly mentions white people, you know, like in his you mean, in his uh, you making mean Jeff making Dees, liber- Jeff Dice. Yeah, Jeff or, Jeff, Dees, Jeff, yeah, Jeff Dice. Yeah. I pronounce it weird, I guess. But yeah, in, in his no, most be. recent speeches at the Property and Freedom Society, uh, uh, right libertarianism is realistic libertarianism, and of course last year, libertarianism and the alt right. 
Hoppe explicitly makes the connection between white Europeans and libertarianism. How it's only in patriarchal white societies which libertarianism has thrived, which have produced the greatest technological innovations the world has ever seen, the greatest amount of prosperity the world has ever seen. He's even gone so far as to say, look, you alternative lifestyle people, live the lives you want, but recognize, recognize that your standard of living is wholly dependent and contingent upon the success of the traditional white patriarchy you so publicly maligned. So if you know what's good for you, you need to let these people be. You know, if you're not if if you don't even want to protect them, that's fine, but don't try to hurt them. It's it's sort of like the parasite intentionally in killing its host. Well you kill the host, you're gonna die too. You know, I mean he says these things and yeah. nothing that Hoppe himself has explicitly said was any more incendiary or any more um, endorsing of the sort of connection between white people, Western traditional European values and libertarianism, anything that I made in my book. But I think Jeff had just got a lot of heat from his blood and soil comment that had happened a few months earlier. They must've been getting some uh, lashback from Hoppe's speech about the alt-right. And so I think they were just kind of sensitive about it. And they acted like women about it because women act like that. Women act fucking emotionally and um, off the cuff like that, you know? It's a very womanly thing to do, and it's very disappointing. They didn't really fucking think about it. Even after any opportunity, yeah. and it seemed like the more reasonable I was with them, the more opportunities I was with, I gave them. It seemed like the more entrenched they became. <laughs> you know, right? It was yeah. It was awesome. it, it's it, it's yeah, definitely. They, they were they definitely were acting very very much in, a, in an emotional manner. So so yeah. David David, do you have any comments or questions? Um, lead it into something else. Um, do you think that there's a, a Jewish influence on the uh, on the what's going on in Europe and what they're pushing in America, especially with the migration and um, um, like interracial marriage and stuff like that? Well, absolutely. You know, um, almost it's well, it's so funny. Almost say, I mean, George. George Soros is is funding a lot of groups both in the United States and Europe, and Soros is is Jewish, so definitely <laughs> millions, many millions of dollars. So, yeah, George Soros is, and then you have um, Hollywood is almost all Jews, and then of course the central banks are, but they're almost populated by almost exclusively Jews. the The highest uh, ranking people of the media organizations who own them are mostly Jews, a lot of the most prominent journalists, especially the ones who promote the sort of culturally Marxist degeneracy, are fucking Jews. I mean, of course, it's not to say that all Jews promote this stuff, but what it is saying is that who are in the highest levels promoting these things, a very, very disproportionate of them are Jews. And this is something we need to consider. And uh, Ethan Chan wrote this great article recently, going back, circling back to the Marxism thing in Europe, the socialism in Europe thing, and it's titled uh, the, or- the, uh, the Jewish Origins of Communism. It's really, really good. I highly, highly recommend that. And it goes into all the evidence and basis for why, uh, the relationship between sort of Judaism and their ethnocentric pursuits and interests and why this had led them to not only uh, discover and develop sort of communist 
uh, ideology, but even to propagate it throughout the Western world and all the devastating effects that has had on Western civilization. I mean, uh, you, you well, can't. You can't. I would say, Go ahead. Oh, I was Go ahead. From, from from where I, David and I have talked about this some at length. One of my positions that I, I've taken on this, I'm, I'm not big on the whole Zion, Zionism argument, but I, I do think that that uh, Jews have a, a Jewish people, Hebrews, they have a tendency to be really good at certain things, uh, and they and they're fairly usually fairly high on the IQ scale, and so they they have a high representation in places where you things like story writing. So you look at Hollywood and news media. Uh, uh, they just they just seem to they they dominate certain certain industries if you look and and it, it, there's just no way around it I mean and the really sad part is that uh, culturally they, they have a very left left wing per, uh, perspective on the world you know. Right, but it extends further beyond that because you, even your so-called right-leaning Jews. You know, like Milo Yiannopoulos or Ben Shapiro, even people like this, which you know there aren't as they aren't as cancerous as some of the other the Jews out there, but even they are very much explicitly against the sort of white nationalist mentality, against white people expressing an explicit in-group preference. Yet they, as as most all other Jews, have no issue of expressing uh, in-group preferences themselves, of following the best interest of their tribe when it comes to their nation of supporting the closed borders and even fucking DNA testing people to see if they're pure enough to be there. <laughs> but then they come to our right. nations and tell us we need to let in all these fucking third world refugees. Like it's disgusting. Um, everything, well, you know, anecdotally, us, they, they don't want for themselves, you know, <laughs> and it, and it, well, anecdotally I have seen, I mean, I've seen where you have people who are Jewish who, who will, Say on one breath, you know, we we need to have open borders, et cetera, et cetera. Then when you mention that Israel should have open borders, they they don't they're not very happy about that. And I will tell you, though, that if you go if you go talk to or if you go look at some of the stuff that I've seen from like Netanyahu, he said that he thinks that the United States ought to have closed borders. Yeah, you know, look at there's, there's yeah, there's certain ones. If you look at in a lot of cases, the Jews who are actually in Israel. Have a different yeah. perspective than the ones in the United States or in different parts of Europe. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and that makes sense. Here's one thing I want to say. Uh, you mentioned how well they're simply overrepresented in these areas because you know they have a higher IQ and whatever else. Well, well, they, they this is true. High, this is true IQ. to an extent. I mean, it's not just high IQ yet, but they're, they're very uh, verbally uh, apt and. And yes. writing wise, and they develop these things over years, and this this is true enough. But even but even controlling for those factors, they are still way overrepresented in these areas. The else going on other than just they just happen to be better at these things, or happen to have a higher intelligence to be able to be better at these things. There, well, if you look there's at how Koreans that, do and, things, it, if you look me, at how what that, do things, and how a lot of different people who immigrate like for, to the United States, they come in the U.S., they're very nepotistic. And I think that right, and that's exactly that what I'm trying to. That's that's exactly the X factor I'm trying to get to is that it's not just that they're more apt at these industries. It's not just that they're more intelligent. That's part of it. But that's a relatively small part. The biggest part of it is that they are very ethnocentric, and they realize any time they live in a society which is also has a strong ethno nationalism, 
a strong national pride. And I don't mean like a civic pride. I mean like a, a true national pride of, of their kin and their, their people who share their ethnicity, religion, and language. Anytime they're in a nation like that, that they have oftentimes been thrown out. So it's sort of a survival instinct for them to undermine any sort of uh, ethno-nationalism or, or strong nationalism that nations they, they, uh, they reside in that are outside of Israel for a survival instinct. But, I mean, of, of course... Well, I, think it, I think it just comes down to your relative position. I mean, if you look at, at, at the whites in South Africa, they're, they are, from their relative position, it would be in their best interest probably to try and make inroads into the government and to try and pay the right people and get some people on their side. And I, and I think you're probably seeing some of the same thing. The problem in the United States is that because we're preaching multiculturalism, we've got all these different groups and they're all allying up and working together to attack the primary group of the majority. Right, and I, th- I really do think this effort is being led primarily by Jews. You know, the blacks, Hispanics, you know, I think mostly, most of the time, not all the time, there's exceptions, speaking generally, most of the times they're kind of like pawns, you know. And you don't, you don't have a systemically, such, such a potent shift in the culture of a society that is so opposite of its origination and foundation without some sort of strategic, deliberate manipulation going on. And this stuff is too sophisticated, usually, for, you know, black people and Hispanic people to, to pull off. And it's usually kind of led by the Jews in many times because, because they have the capacity, the mental capacity to kind of strategically do this stuff, to infiltrate the institutions which can manifest these things. And, of course, unfortunately for the blacks and the Hispanics, they, they are used as useful idiots towards these ends, too. You know, and um, again, just want to reiterate, not all Jews are like this. I, I understand that. It's just, I think it originated from a survival instinct perspective. They want to take control of parts of the government so that they can prevent them from, you know, uh, expelling them or targeting them. But I feel like once they got that taste of power, they wanted more and more and more. And what started off as something sort of defensive ended up being something offensive. You know, sure. and, and it sort of took on a sort of domination thing. And, you know, power corrupts, it corrupts Jews like anyone else. <laughs> right. right. Well, well I would, so. yeah, well, I would tell you, I've never been a big fan of I, I've always viewed a lot of and, and, I, and I'm not saying that a lot of what you're saying right now is incorrect. I'm just saying that I've never been a big fan of, of a lot of the, the theories like, you know, the Rothschilds and, and a lot of the banking stuff. And I'll tell you why. For the same reason, if you listen to Jared Taylor. Uh, he, he talks about some of the things that we, uh, some of the other racial groups, particularly black people, talk about white privilege and, and white supremacists and things like that, and how white people have kept, have conspired to keep all the other races down for centuries. And you and I both know that there's no, there's no overarching organization to uh, running white people for us to try and. You know, suppress the rest of the planet, and and I and I want to caution you. I I don't believe that there's the same. I I, I kind of take the same approach with Jewish people. I don't believe there's an overarching organization, any one of any serious power that's that is trying to suppress the rest of the planet, and in particular white people. I think that we make a serious mistake if we start blaming all of our problems on on Jews, and and what we really need to look at is 
the faults that we have in our own in ourselves, which is, is that we are allowing these things to be done to us in our own countries. And if we yes. didn't allow them to happen, then nobody, nobody from the outside, no foreign countries, Russians, whoever, nobody could come in and do these things to us. So it really, at the end of the day, the fault lays at our feet. Yeah. Well, of course, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, and I can't even say from a purely like strategic standpoint that I blame the Jews for doing what they do. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you, if you don't, if your sole intention is just to accrue as much wealth and power and influence to your people as you can, and the Jews have done a fantastic job at it. And they're really good with the fuck. They really good at what they do, you know, and you're right. Ultimately it's our responsibility as white people to thwart any sort of attempt to dominate us, whether that's culturally, socially, or uh, politically. So it, it does yeah, fall sir. to us. And I, I wouldn't say that there is some single organization, which is masterminding everything. But what I would say what I would say is within the Jewish community, especially sort of the source Zionist community, there is a very deliberate and, and general trend for them to deliberately and continuously undermine Western institutions. Western, so that the more multiculturalism they, they can promote, the safer they feel and that they are and the more power they can grab. And uh, they haven't done this by simply being by just being better at what they do, just being better bankers or just by making better movies or just by being more apt at the industries that they're in. They've done this oftentimes through fraud, uh, through utilizing the aggressive apparatus of the state and manipulating it to their own ends. And uh, that's not a, that's not something that we need. That's not something that's good or, or natural. That's not something that, that should be, just sort of dismissed as, well, it's just the result of, you know, survival of the fittest sort of thing. Um, and the, and, well, and the mean, industries that Jews have been in have not been... Per- Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, Go ahead, sorry. Culturally, I mean, culturally, I think there's certain behaviors, certain things that are, that are ingrained in their culture. They're a, they're, a diaspor- they're a diasporic culture. They're always the outsider. They're always the other. Uh, and so they're always going to be looking at everything in that perspective and of course you're right there's safety in numbers so other racial groups they're going to they're going to want to ally up with them. but i mean we're all trying to get in when, when it comes to the state when it comes to the government we're all trying to get in and and infiltrate those organizations and get a piece of it you know all, every racial group is trying to to get to the feeding trough um I, I just like i said again i mean i i don't see any sort of i, I, I see things that are ingrained in cultures and in beha- cultural behaviors the way that we're raised but I don't necessarily see any any master plans anywhere. I right, think, but I think you that's got, where you I'm always coming from. Of course, it's it's of course it's true that people of all races and creeds want to wield the power of the state. It's it's the Lord, it's the ring, the, the ring of power, right? Right. But, but um, it's more often the case it's that white people are more interested in general, not always, of course. We have our demagogue as well <laughs> um, and sociopaths. It's more often the case that we want to focus on production, on, long, on the long-term production of things, of innovating new ideas, and um, of 
pushing the boundaries of science further, the boundaries of progress further, of holding true to our families and keeping solid our sort of work ethic and integrity. We want to produce for good. We want to spread good. That's a very general way of putting it. With the Jews, however, you know, their culture isn't so much on production. It's more so on uh, manipulation, right? And maybe this, this is born out of survival instinct, but it is what it is, regardless of why it is or how it became to be. And sort of not producing themselves or innovating themselves and sort of feeding off of the production and innovation of others. And this is precisely why they have gone, been, been so apt at um, getting control of the state getting control of the central banks, which they do. You can't deny that they are the very disproportionately represented in these, the top fields of these areas, in Hollywood and in academia and whatnot. And the people who are most apt at wielding the state power, the best, are those who are going to be able to be the most strategic and deceptive and have the best demagoguery. And, of course, like you mentioned, the Jews are the most apt at these, at these, in these fields. Hence why they've been able to attain the most amount of influence and pull in these areas. You know, it all goes kind of hand in hand. And uh, this is something to be recognized. And I'm not saying that we need to, like, you know, kill all the Jews or even that we need to deport all the Jews. (laughs) You know, what I am saying, though, is that uh, um, we need to recognize that this agenda does exist. And even if there's not some monolithic organization pushing the same specific details, it is a general agenda that is generally pushed by Jews as a tribal uh, objective. And just be aware of it. Just be aware of it. Identify it. And when you identify and are aware of it, then you can defend against it. If it really is our responsibility to people not to be thwarted by these, by these agendas, we need to at least be able to identify them. And confidently so. It doesn't mean we need to start killing people or deporting people, but just identify it, being aware of it, and disassociate with it. And you can't disassociate and fight it if you don't identify it. So you got to identify it. You got to put it out there. You got to recognize it. You know. I guess that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> okay. No. No. And I understand. Um, I, I would say that we we agree about ninety five percent probably. And maybe there's a five percent difference there. But um, so, David, do you have any other any other questions or any other points that you'd like to throw out there? Or ask? Um, yeah, I do think that they like like you and me discuss. They have this like a uh, that slave morality. That's ingrained in the culture. Yeah, but it's ingrained and in, we seem to be displaying it in Christianity a lot now too. Um, and and are you Chase? Are you familiar with the concept of slave morality? Not really. Well, it's something that that uh, uh, Nietzsche put out there that uh, the master and slave morality, and essentially, a uh, slave morality uh, is where you start thinking in terms of the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, uh, that that people by virtue of their economic, you know, the poor people have some sort of moral um, uh, superiority to wealthy people. I see, I see. And yeah, so on, okay. David. You might you might throw throw a little bit in there if you think of anything. 
David, you still there? Yep. 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 Um, so you, how would you explain slave morality, David? Uh, yeah, it's just like you said that uh, I'm I'm weak, so I'm a good person, uh, as opposed to master morality, which is I'm a I have to get I have to get things and achieve things in order to be a good person. I think that's pretty succinct, and I think that slave morality seems to be deeply ingrained in in Judaism and and more recently even uh, Christianity. And you can see it in some of the Pope's edicts, you know, and talking about oh, yeah. uh, God. allowing immigrants to flood the borders and so on, you know. Um, yeah, he essentially he even said – go ahead. The Pope even said that um, – Francis said that um, – I believe this is legit. He said that they need to um, not be afraid of um, mating with the migrants. And oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that, I think that's a bit of that – Slave morality. Uh. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny you bring this up because I think that's actually a misinterpretation of this sort of Christian values and scriptures. And it's something that has become, you're right, more popular, especially more recently. Um, I'm actually helped edit and going to publish this book written by somebody else. I sort of edited and refined it. It's going to be called Church versus the State, the Biblical Case for Libertarianism. And it's going to kind of go along these misconceptions that, oh, well, Jesus was more for socialism or he thought, you know, being a rich person mean you were more, you were definitely a, a more sinful person. Put things in the, there's a lot of historical context that gets ignored. There's a lot of uh, context that, that gets overseen, which makes people draw conclusions that aren't intended in the text. Like, oh, you know, He's saying a rich person has just as much uh, chance to get to salvation as putting in a camel through the eye of a needle. Well, no, he's saying in general, no, people have a very low chance of getting salvation unless they you know, accept Christ and go through him to um, be redeemed of their sins and become pure in the eyes of God or whatever. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, so a lot of these ideas that, well, you got to be poor, you got to be meek or whatever, a lot of them have been misinterpreted and mis misled a lot of people to adopting what you just described as a slave morality. I mean, and, and look at the Jews. I mean, you know, it, 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 that's really what's intended. You know, the Jews had the Old Testament. If they really believe that, then why would they be, you know, demographically the absolutely most wealthy people on the fucking planet? You know, if they really believe. Right. Look at show, Abraham. You know? well, look at yeah. Abraham, where, where it really supposedly all started. Look how wealthy he was. You know, and I, and I, yeah. think, I think really what, what the statement was about was about people's attachment to worldly possessions more than anything. That's the reason why a rich person has trouble. You know, it may have maybe a little tougher for some wealthy people, but you can be wealthy easily and and get to heaven. You just you just have to realize, you know, you can't take it with you, I think is the point. And, well, yeah. and another another thing that is part of the slave morality, you see it play out with the state uh when they when they're making decisions about things um, they penalize, for instance, in our tax system, you're penalized for being wealthy. You pay more taxes. You pay a higher percentage of your income than poor people. Now, I know that they have some justifications for that, but all of that plays into the idea that um, uh, the, the wealthy should, to a certain extent, be ashamed of their wealth. And the, the poor should be, you know, the poor should be treated as though they're always morally and ethically superior in most every situation. 
Yeah. Um, well, the reason why they why they promote these sort of populist messages, these messages which appear which appeal to the common man, is because it is through obtaining the common man's support that they are able to undermine every other hierarchical structure that exists out there, and arrogate to themselves the most amount of power. You know, they sort of prey upon the resentment of people in a lower status, whether that's financially or socially or whatever. And, and they say, Hey, you should, you should be equal to these other people, no matter the fact that they may produce more than the other, they may have been a, had a better character, more integrity, and therefore gained a higher social status than you. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't be discriminated against. And they prey upon their envy and, and make it seem as if it's moral to equalize everything. And, of course, ultimately, when it comes to, well, how do we equalize everything? Well, just give me all the power, and I'll make it so. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's how they ultimately dismantled the feudal kingdoms. That's how they ultimately dismantled the constitutional kingdoms and finally brought in a democracy where everyone has the potential to have a seat of power. And there's one man, one vote. And it's only through right. a democracy in which you even have – the possibility of eventually having a one world state, you know? Well, well, and then uh, I started to say, hence, hence democracy, one, another bad aspect of democracy. It, it definitely plays to slave morality. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the politicians have to play into that because they're seeking votes, one man, one vote. And <clears throat> so nations that have democracies or have uh, voting systems, they cater to populism. And since a good portion of your population is either poor or lower middle class, you're going to cater to them, which means that you're going to cater to a you're going to to have a you're going to have to use slave morality thinking in order to get votes. And then when you get in office, if you want to stay in office, you're going to have to continue to think like that and try to at least part of the time in order to, you know, to continue to get those votes and get that support. So. It's it's really you know it, it all kind of feeds on itself you know and and I think your book you you put a lot of information in here and you you break down there's a lot of good references on each each chapter um, and and you address some of this stuff in your book about you know some of the pitfalls or downfalls of democracy and things like that correct I focus more on the pitfalls of democracy specifically in my first book but yeah I do touch upon that. Hey guys, um, I've got to go. I've got to go real yep, soon. No, no um, yeah. Can we wrap this up probably a little bit? Sorry, I don't yeah, mean to no, rush. Not that, a but... problem. No, no, you're fine. As a matter of fact, uh, Chase, if you want to go, you can go anytime. Uh, we we told you about an hour, so you know if if you're running out of time, you're more than welcome to take off, and David and I can wrap up things. But we certainly yeah. appreciate having you on the show. I think it was a great conversation. You covered a lot of topics, covered a lot of information. Uh, if you might want to touch again real quick on what your, anything that you want to promote real fast before you jump off, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Uh, check out my book, A Spontaneous Order, The Capitalist Case for a Stateless Society on Amazon, as well as my new book, White, Right, and Libertarian, also on Amazon. The Audible was just released, too. So maybe if you don't want to read, you'd rather listen. You have that option available. Check out RadicalCapitalist.org. And in a couple of days... That is on uh, Wednesday. Check out my debate with Richard Spencer. We're going to be um, debating on imperialism versus anarcho-capitalism. So it's sure to be a very interesting and engaging debate there. Um, All right. And that's and on you know which channel that will be on. 
yeah, that'll be on John Francois Gareppi's um, YouTube channel. I think he calls it the public space. <clears throat> that'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern time on the 11th. All right. Sounds fantastic. Thanks, Chase. We appreciate having you on tonight. Thank you for having me. All right. Good luck in your debate. Thank you. See ya. So, David? Uh yeah, we we're at an hour and a half, so we we went over by about a half hour. I didn't even realize that the time kind of slips away when you're having some of these conversations. Um, so uh, this is a special episode. We, of course, we had decided to not do any episodes uh, in season one, except for a couple of special episodes. We might possibly have one more here uh, before we start season two, but for the most part, uh, this is kind of a one-off, so... I'm glad that you and I could get back together to to host uh, Christopher Chase Rachel's tonight. And um, you know, uh, any any afterthoughts or anything before before we wrap it up? Um, maybe we need to get T.J. Brown on here, like we've like it like in the past, like we've talked about. Get try to get him on here and play 4D chess and. Do one about being black and libertarian. <laughs> See how that goes. Yeah, well, I I I, th- I think that that you're probably right, uh, and and I think that that would be a, a a good a good show to have. I mean, I, there are guys like Jesse Lee Peterson out there that are in the alt right community that are are black. It is not necessarily a hundred percent white thing, um, and. Uh, you know, it's good to, from time to time to hear some of those voices as well, you know. <laughs> like, um, I suspect people be like, oh, wow, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a black libertarian. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, that, that's pretty funny. So, so, um, uh, man, Christopher really touched on a, a lot of, um, a lot of topics. I mean, he, he really, he really covered a lot of information. This is probably one of our better shows. I think that we've had just from that perspective. Uh, and so really grateful to have him on as a guest. Um, so I definitely, at some point, I mean, I'd love to get Jared Howe on here to talk. Um, I think he's more in line with, with Chase as far as, you know, uh, talking about some of the stuff with, with Jews and stuff than I am probably. But it, I still think that it would be good to have Jared on and let him talk about some different topics that he wants to go over sometime if we can get him to come on. Yeah. What do yeah, you think about that? Yeah, it would be great to have uh, Jared on. Yeah, and, and we could have him on. We could do a special episode for him, or we could bring him in on sometime in season two, but I'd definitely like to have him. I did make an invitation to Chris Cantwell at one point to have him come on uh, if he wanted to, to talk and cover some topics, you know, for an hour. I uh, hadn't heard back from him, but, you know, we'd like to like to definitely have him on. And there are other, other personalities that I'd like to have on um, down the road, so anybody who's listening to this, if you're – interested in coming on the show, you have a book or anything you'd like to do, just let us know. Um, so, so what are you, what are you up to these days, David? Um, nothing much. Uh, uh, just working, um, uh, trying to do the, um, alt-right thing, uh, do, uh, 
get my own place, but I want to uh, try to find someone who's white and <laughs> make make more <laughs> white children on the planet. <laughs> well, so so are you uh, uh, are you are you considering uh, school or anything, or are you doing anything like that right now? Or yeah, I'm working on a certificate actually to um, on teaching uh, English actually. Um, okay. I'm actually I'm doing pretty good at it. All right, fantastic. Yeah. That's cool. See some things going on. Well, I'm uh, as I said before, I'm I'm in school right now and and working full time, of course. But um, so it has some to do with the reason why we we ended our season and we we took our little break. But anyway, uh, it's been it's been fun. Yeah, I almost hate to hate to hang it up and and get off the air because I'm used to doing these a couple times a week and we haven't done one in weeks now. So, uh, you know, you get a little bit of theming for a fix and we just got it with, with Chase. So, anyway, all right. Well, unless you have anything else you'd like to add, David, I guess we can wrap it. Mm, yes, yeah, teaching English as a first language. Um, that's what I've been working on. Uh, that's that's about it. Right. So you're talking about like teaching overseas, maybe teaching English in foreign countries. Possibly, yeah. Uh, uh, European only. <laughs> I won't choose anywhere else because I'm not comfortable. Right. Going outside any. Right. Um, I had her had her John third world. <laughs> you're not interested in going to any shitholes. No. Um, no. No, no, uh, but know, I guess I need to learn English too. Um, uh, no thanks, I pass. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, I guess we'll wrap, and uh, we'll we'll be coming back soon, and you know, maybe about a month or so, we'll start season two. But uh, thanks, David. Good talking again, brother. Yep. Same to you, Clifton. <laughs> for black, Latino, women, gender, queer studies, and so forth, as incompatible with science, and dismiss its faculties as intellectual imposters or scoundrels. As well, demand that all affirmative action commissars, diversity and human resource officers from universities on down to schools and kindergartens be thrown out onto the street and be forced to learn some useful trade. Six, crush the anti-fascist mob, the transvaluation of all values throughout the West, the invention of ever more victim groups, the spread of affirmative action programs, and the relentless promotion of political correctness has led to the rise of an anti-fascist mob, tacitly supported and indirectly funded by the ruling elites This self-described mob of social justice warriors has taken upon itself the task of escalating the fight against white privilege through deliberate acts of terror directed against anyone and anything deemed racist, right-wing, fascist, reactionary, incorrigible, or unreconstructed. Such enemies of progress are 